You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello, and welcome to the Super Talk podcast. My name is Tyrell Mills. Today, we're taking a look at real estate sustainability through the lens of ESG. A legal opinion dating back to October of 2016 found that many climate change risks are foreseeable at the present time and that Australian company directors who fail to consider climate change risks could now be found liable for breaching their duty of care and diligence in the future. This was followed up in March of 2017, where ASIC's Kate O'Rourke told a Senate committee that climate change risks were, in brackets, foreseeable, and directors who fail to consider them might be liable for breaches of S-180 of the Corporations Act, which relates to director duties of care and diligence. Uh, This suggests that the regulator's view of acting with care and diligence now also includes directors being aware of and acting upon climate change risks. According to the 2019 PERE ESG Investor Survey, there is strong evidence that globally, sustainable investing is on the rise, with 70% of institutional real estate investors having an explicit ESG policy in place, and nearly all respondents reporting that ESG principles have some role in shaping their investment decision-making. Now, our guest for this episode is Chris Nunn, the Head of Sustainability for the Real Estate Business within AMP Capital. He wrote in a report last year that sustainability has become a dominant global economic risk and business megatrend that will transform business industries and society. Not only is real estate an important asset for combating climate challenges, but as we're about to hear, it's actually a front runner for sectors that are taking action on ESG. Largely, this comes from the direct risk of climate change impacts in liabilities such as erosion or damage from major weather events to real estate assets. This is a very comprehensive and compelling discussion with Chris. I hope you enjoy it. Here he is now. Alrighty, welcome to the Super Talk podcast. Chris, how are you going? Very well, thank you. And you're based up in Sydney? How's, how's, right. uh, how's the working situation? I feel this is the obligatory question at the start of every podcast. How's your office oh, we're space? Going well. Thank you tell, for asking. T- um, and my sympathies to all those in Victoria who are in a much more severe state of lockdown than we are. But um, yeah, we're managing well. Uh, I'm in the office today and I'm typically coming in one day a week and working from home the remainder of the time, which is balancing out pretty well. I've got three young kids, so that's working well. It's uh, yeah. Tricky stuff, but I imagine uh, you're getting through it pretty well. So today we're speaking uh, sustainability in the real estate sector. Firstly, do you want to give me a bit of an overview of where the real estate sector is at in relation to ESG? Yes, I think sustainability, as we often refer to it in real estate or ESG, as it's more known in the investment circles, is a relatively mature area of interest in real estate. We've had you know, strong rating tools like Greenstar and Neighbours for well over a decade. Um, early on in the climate change piece, buildings were identified by the McKinsey's uh, study. McKinsey's marginal abatement cost curves showed that buildings were the most cost-effective climate change mitigation opportunity, things like improving glazing and external shading and improved windows, and they have a really short payback. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in the real estate sector that's meant there's cost-effective climate change mitigation opportunities from day one. And, you know, so for, for many, many years, my whole career, we've been busy doing those things. 
And now I think we're at a point where the real estate sector is maturing uh, and it's got very credible solutions to climate change, as in reducing emissions and running on renewable energy and addressing scope three emissions associated with, you know, tenant emissions and transport to and from site. You know, these are all things that we're, we're relatively familiar with, as well as pushing into all of the other areas of sustainability, not just environmental sustainability in regards to waste and, and water and biodiversity, but the social dimension of sustainability. Real estate's been thinking about that for quite a long time around placemaking and livability and walkability and job creation and, you know, community impacts, as well as the governance of, you know, our broader businesses. So, you know, we've been thinking about ESG for a long time, and I think it's it's a relatively mature area within the the real estate sector um, and there's lots of collaboration and knowledge sharing within the industry we have really strong member bodies like the property council of australia the green building council of australia and the australian sustainable built environment council all of which are forums where the sustainability leaders within the real estate businesses come together share knowledge collaborate form solutions uh, and make practical policy recommendations up to government so we're quite good at figuring out a solution and then making a recommendation to government through our industry bodies as well. So, um, you know, from the policy advocacy perspective, we're, we're also relatively mature. Speaking to you uh, just the other week, you mentioned that Australia was generally regarded as a bit of a laggard in terms of climate action generally, but that wasn't the case for Australian real estate, uh, that perhaps Australia is actually a leader in climate resilience when it comes to the real estate sector. Uh, can you talk to that some more? Yeah, absolutely. I think in Australia, I mean, we'd, we'd all recognise that due to the dominance of coal in our energy mix and the influence of, you know, the mining lobby politically on our national and state policy responses to climate change, we've got a relatively weak Kyoto and Paris um, commitment compared to other developed countries. And we could and probably should be much more ambitious in the, the policy context regarding our transition to renewable energy and sustainable buildings and sustainable transport. But notwithstanding that, there has been a really strong market appetite, particularly within real estate, to support that transition to running running efficient buildings on renewable energy and for investors to invest in those sustainable buildings. Um, but the policy context hasn't always been that supportive. And really notwithstanding those, despite all those things, the industry has really rallied around uh, a common perception that more sustainable buildings um, do deliver better tenant and investor outcomes, better, more comfortable, higher amenity buildings, higher quality experience uh, for the, the occupant and a better return for the investor. And that's um, it's something that has really borne out in, in GRESB, which is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. This is, a, a glo as the name implies, it's a, a benchmark of real estate companies around the world on a variety of ESG factors. It's probably one of the more comprehensive ESG international metrics in the world. Um, it's got more than 1,200 funds in it, almost 100,000 assets participate. 60 countries represented, you know, over 5 trillion in assets under management are all participating in this GRESP survey. So it has a really wide coverage and it's very comprehensive ESG assessment of the real estate sector globally. And Australia is the leading region globally in GRESP um, quite substantially. So the global average score in the most recent GRESP benchmarking survey in 2019 was 72, whereas the Australian region average in 2019 was 81. And AMP Capital Real Estate's average score across the six funds that we had participating last year was 90. 
So, you know, global average 72, Australian average 81, sort of a leader like us, we're in the 90s. And that's kind of reflective of where the global peer set is relative to the Australian uh, real estate sustainability positioning is that we are relatively mature, we're performing well, and we have really quantifiable ways of showing how uh, we've got lower energy consumption, lower water consumption, better waste management, more sophisticated policies and procedures, um, and, and delivering better social outcomes than, than almost anyone else in the world in terms of uh, commercial real estate. So Australia is doing really well in that regard. want to have a bit of a chat about how you guys uh, interact with institutional investors. What, what are you seeing that they're, what are they focusing on, I suppose, when it comes to the ESG in the real estate sector? Yeah, we're seeing institutional investors become more and more sophisticated in the things that they're interested in knowing about our ESG strategy. I think even just a few years ago, perhaps three to five years ago, you would be going to an investor meeting with the institutional investment manager and they wouldn't necessarily have an ESG specialist client side on their side, but now almost invariably they have an ESG expert in-house um, from the institutional investment side, and they're much more sophisticated in the specific questions that they're asking. Um, they're aware of how we are positioned relative to our peers in relevant benchmarks like GRESB and the others that we participate in, the, the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment, are we reporting against the Global Reporting Initiative, which indicators do we prefer? Are we going to report in line with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures? How are we tracking on modern slavery? You know, how's our climate resilience work going? They're, they're asking really sophisticated questions that go to the relationship between ESG and their value. It's not merely uh, a negative screen probe, which is show me that you're doing something on ESG to give me confidence that, you know, you're not the worst of the worst, but rather it's, it's very rapidly moving to quite a positive screen. It's like, well, if you can't tangibly demonstrate through these metrics that you're one of the leading performers, well, then I'd rather take my money elsewhere. So we're, we're really seeing that shift to... Um, a quite a sophisticated and progressive stance on ESG from from most of our institutional clients. You touched a little on the data and metrics there. Uh, how are they faring in the real estate sector? Can you give me a bit of an insight into how AMP Capital has been using data to drive ESG strategy? More and more, it's the centrepiece of, of our monitoring management activity and our reporting. Uh, and we have relatively sophisticated benchmarking tools like Neighbours, the National Australian Built Environment Rating System, which has an energy, a water and a waste rating tool that we use extensively. We have GreenStar, which is a relatively mature tool historically just for new builds, but now there's GreenStar Performance that relates to operational performance as well, which again, we use and all of our competitors use. We have GRESB, which looks at all of those things and more and in an international context. And then of course we do our own tracking on kilowatt hours of energy and megalitres of water and tons of waste and by type and recycle percentage. We also track gender diversity and by level of seniority. We track the implementation of our reconciliation action plan on you know traditional custodians and our engagement with first Australians and our sort of cultural acceptance of those, um, you know, diversity outcomes. So we have 60 detailed sustainability targets across environment, social and governance themes, um, all aligned to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. 
and and that is quite a sophisticated response, but it's increasingly the minimum expectation by investors uh, that they want to see full transparency on, on all of those ESG metrics and they want that data to be audited by a credible third party and they want it to be aligned to globally consistent frameworks like the GRI, the, the Principles for Responsible Investment, like GRESB and Carbon Disclosure Project and, and TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure to to have those metrics to hand and to be using them in your communications back to investors to show how you're performing uh, against your peers. And I suppose another area of the data and metrics is how it influences your thinking on climate risks. Do you want to speak through what, what your thinking is in there? Yes, absolutely. I think this is an area that institutional investors in particular are becoming much more sophisticated about in terms of what they're asking on, uh, asking us about. Um, they clearly have an interest with their money invested in real estate assets of the physical impacts of climate change, such as sea level rise and the increased frequency and severity of storm events, um, potentially creating higher wind loads on roofs and, you know, knocking over telecommunications masks that then can fall onto roofs. You know, there's all these physical risks that come with, um, you know, a more severe storm fre frequency intensity, particularly, as well as the sea level rise and the, the river flooding, uh, as well as heat waves and bushfire risk. So across, you know, a, a fair range of the predicted impacts of climate change, real estate assets can be quite vulnerable. Um, but also they can be made quite resilient. So this is an area that we're very much focusing on. Um, there's this task force on climate related financial disclosures, which we've mentioned um, at the global level. And there's been a strong uh, industry response to interpreting that at the Australian level. There's a climate measurements standards initiatives financial committee, which I've participated in, which interpreted this TCFD global standard and how are we going to look at climate resilience in real estate in Australia? So we're gonna use two of the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes scenarios, they call it RCP 2.5 and 8.5, so the low range good case scenario where we limit global warming to below two degrees, that's RCP 2.6, and, and the worst case, uh, if you like, or a, a collection, an average of worst case scenarios, RCP 8.5, which is basically unmitigated climate change. So we're using those two scenarios, particularly RCP 8.5, to stress test the impacts of climate change on our real estate portfolios at the asset level, city level and asset level. And uh, the CMS IFC committee report um, is guiding us towards the timeframes that we should use as well, that we should be reporting at 2030, the year 2050, and the year 2070 against RCP 2.6 and 8.5. So we're really getting clarity around what the industry position consensus is on how we should report, disclose and measure physical risks of climate change. Um, and so we at AMP Capital Real Estate have done quite a bit of resilience analysis of our portfolio. We have about 100 assets, offices, industrial and shopping centres. And we've looked at the top down city scale types of impacts, heat waves, floods, storms, um, uh, sea level rise. And then we've also looked bottom up at the granular asset level data. We produced a, a survey which we sent out to all of our um, property managers that said, well, questions like last time there was a one in 100 year flood, what happened at your asset and what were the impacts and what particular areas flooded or drains backed up or was electrical infrastructure at risk, you know, how high did the levels get relative to other critical infrastructure like generators and electrical switchboards and, you know, did, did you have any roof damage in a storm? And so we've asked really specific questions about past 
climatic events at that extreme scale from which we hope to be able to extrapolate the kinds of increase. Okay, so we can say, okay, well, in the one in 100 year flood, we had an insurance claim and the total value of the damage was $100,000 and a business continuity disruption of three hours. Okay, well, if that one in 100 year flood becomes three times more likely by 2050 and twice as severe, we have some sort of numeric basis to extrapolate from. So we're kind of building that granular evidence base to use in combination with our scenario analysis to make predictions about asset level financial impacts um, in terms of insurance implications. Um, you know, will the asset cost more to insure and, and, and in what ways should we amend our insurance policies to cover the more increased frequency and likelihood of um, and severity of the impacts from climate change? What capital works? What capex can we do um, to potentially protect the asset? You know, whether it's flood defences, better drainage, um, changing box gutters and siphonic drains to drains with higher capacity to cope with increased, you know, high frequency deluges. Um, or and, and what is the impact on valuation? You know, ultimately, does this collection of potential climate impacts and physical um, vulnerabilities at an asset level? have a bearing on its long-term valuation. And we're just starting to explore that. That's probably the hardest part of the turning, you know, physical risks into, um, you know, valuation dollars is is one of the challenges that we're, we're already facing into now and, and what's the methodology for doing that. So I suppose another area of the data and metrics is just looking at returns the ability to, do, to derive positive investment returns from ESG investments. Are you seeing higher yield on sustainable real estate ventures in Australia? Certainly, I think there's a, a, long, a long understanding in Australia that there's downside risk of not doing ESG. You know, you could be wiped out in a flood. You could um, have people pass over your office tenancy because you have a poor neighbours rating and someone else has a good neighbours rating. And so I, I think there's long been an understanding of that risk of downside risk for poor performing assets. But there's also increasing evidence of increased returns for the best performers. So we've done some work based on MSCI data around the correlation between valuation um, and neighbours ratings and green star ratings. So in the prime CBD office market, the green assets do outperform the, the broader average market um, pretty substantially, you know, 50 basis point um, return premium for those offices with a with a high neighbours rating. So, you know, ESG does matter tangibly in real estate. It does affect um, returns. We, we know that asset valuations and returns are, are related to ESG. Um, there really is a growing divergence between those high performing assets with great ESG credentials and the, the poorer ones who have neglected it and have high operating costs and are significantly exposed to the costs of transition to zero carbon. Um, and, and that can be a significant spread on return. It, it, it clearly goes to lower operating costs to have a, a better, a more efficient green, higher rated green building. Clearly, there's lower operating costs, and that's an advantage for your net operating income. There's, there's lower vacancy as well. There's good evidence showing that green buildings have less vacancy and shorter vacancy periods and therefore a longer weighted average lease expiry so profile which is really key therefore to their long-term valuation so you know there's real correlations um, between esg performance and and fundamental property valuation metrics
just to finish on, uh, AMP Capital has an, a pretty ambitious 2030 real estate sustainability strategy. If we were to jump forward 10 years and you had ticked off all of the goals and objective of that strategy, what, what would things look like? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. It's a it's an appealing vision to project forward into 2030, and we've recently done that exercise. So we we launched our 2030 sustainability strategy in October last year, 2019, and it had 60 ambitious targets for us to achieve by the year 2030, and they include things like well that we will be zero carbon uh, in our scope one and two operations. Uh, we'll have efficient buildings running on renewable energy. And to the extent that we need offsets for any residual gas or diesel or refrigerant associated emissions, our scope one emissions as they're known, that we'll have a credible domestic nature-based offset scheme using effectively forestry um, conservation as the source of those credits, not international credits, um, which is I think the most credible approach. That we'll and that we'll have really strong engagement with our customers, the tenants on their emissions, our scope three, their scope two emissions in particular, that things like solar, on-site solar, on-site battery installations and EV charging will be completely ubiquitous across real estate assets. We will have probably um, gone a long way to electrifying buildings and removing the gas, um, which is after all a fossil fuel with, with carbon emissions. So electrification will be well underway, if not already there. We will have switched out a lot of the high global warming potential refrigerants to the new generation of low global warming synthetic refrigerants, um, which is happening at the moment. We will have you know, really done all our analysis and be able to transparently disclose our exposure to climate change, um, the physical impacts of climate change, and we'll understand the resilience of our assets to those shocks and stresses from weather patterns um, at the asset level, but also at a societal level. For instance, a shopping centre, it's one thing the asset is resilient and its roof is strong, so it won't get blown away in a high wind, but it's another if the bridge is down and the power's out, nobody's coming to the shopping centre and there's an interruption to trade because of the broader societal impacts of climate change. So you'll understand those second order effects very well as, as well and we'll be able to factor that into our planning around the resilience of the asset in the face of, of climate and other vulnerabilities. I think we will have made a lot of headway on the area of waste. Um, you know, plastic bag bans are now common, but I think we'll see that extend to other forms of single-use plastic and most forms of disposable plastic will probably not be in our assets anymore and that we will have switched to compostable alternatives and effectively disposable waste will turn into soil and not be turning into a persistent microplastic problem polluting the oceans uh, as it is now. Um, we'll be doing a lot better on biodiversity. We've got an ambitious plan to create a conservation reserve that is equal in size to our entire real estate footprint and we're well underway in creating that even now. So certainly by 2030 we'll have this this forest, this conservation reserve um, to compensate for the physical footprint of our real estate assets. And I think in the area of social, um, the S in ESG will be very good at social sustainability by then, whereas now I think that's the emerging area. So we'll have deep engagement with our local communities and we'll have really demonstrable po positive social impact outcomes like that we can report to our investors like job local job creation, you know, how we are supporting the most vulnerable people in the communities where we have real estate assets and we'll be able to measure that and report that back tangibly as as outcomes to our investors and our customers. And we'll be addressing key local social challenges. We'll be a part of the, of the solution to things like homelessness and domestic violence and other sort of persistent social issues. 
We'll be really good at diversity and inclusion, which is an area that you know we're faced into, uh, you know, in terms of brand challenges for for AMP and AP Capital recently. Um, we already have great gender diversity within the real estate part of AMP Capital, so we actually have you know strong female leadership at level five and above, and we track that. We're at forty percent um, female in our senior leadership positions and sixty percent female across our broader real estate staff. And we'll have got really good at ethnic diversity, inclusion and, you know, diversity of thought and our reconciliation action plan, which we have already been through the first iteration. We're just going through the second iteration now. Innovate Wrap is just about to launch. But that will be really embedded as part of the design of our buildings. You know, you'll see the Aboriginal artwork and thematics in the, the colours and the art and the design of the buildings. And there'll be a strong connection to traditional custodians for the people who live and work in those buildings or shop there that they will understand what who the traditional custodians are, what those values mean to us as the, the landlord and, and how that, that will have a tangible form in the real estate assets and it'll be a visceral part of the experience of visiting the building. And it'll be a bigger part of our culture and language. You know, we'll be naming more things like our conservation reserve is is proposed to be named Murray Daramu, which is local Gadigal Aboriginal language for many trees. So, you know, that we'll, we'll follow that New Zealand example where I think we'll have more dual naming and that'll be, you know, the Aboriginal um cultural pride in Australia will be much stronger. In the area of diversity also we'll, we'll be much better at accessibility. That's a big theme in our 2030 strategy. You know, one in five people has some form of disability in Australia, whether that's a physical or a, or a mental health challenge. Um, and actually only a very small proportion of those people with some form of special need are in a wheelchair. But that's typically who we've catered to in the real estate sector with ramps and, and physical accessibility issues, which is great. Um, but there's a broader world of special needs. You know, adult changing facilities will be ubiquitous, but there will also be, you know, quiet times in shopping centres for people with ADHD or dementia. And, you know, we'll be a, a lot more responsive and addressing mental health challenges as well, as well as vision impairment and auditory impairment, which I think we've got a fair way to go on as well. So, you know, recognising all forms of ability and making real estate more accessible to, you know, those very many uh, people, uh, users of our assets who are currently quite disenfranchised from the experience. So I think we'll get a lot better at accessibility. Modern slavery is a really hot topic now. So supply chain sustainability is something I think by 2030 will be very sophisticated at understanding who we're contracting with, that they have solid human rights track records. We will know our supply chain partners a lot better and we'll have a lot more confidence in them and be able to report on those things and that we can hand on heart say that we are free from modern slavery and other forms of issues like whether it's you know, the embodied carbon in materials will be more transparent. So we'll, we'll just get better at knowing the the environmental and social impacts of our supply chains. There'll be a lot more, I think, ESG-linked finance. You know, green bonds and sustainable finance will be more central to our fundraising, and there'll be much more of these positive ESG screens operating in terms of our access to finance and our deployment of capital. You know, and my personal vision is that, you know, as part of our strategy that we'll have a sustainable real estate fund for the very progressive end of investors, impact investors who are deliberately going out and choosing investments that have environmental and social returns um, and potentially lower financial returns, that we will have a product that caters to that impact investment market, that will have potentially a diversified new product for impact investors that's focused, for instance, on the multi-unit residential, um, you know, build to rent sector uh, and building 
best-in-class passive houses with, you know, social housing component, component or specialist disability accommodation. So, you know, we'll have we'll have more innovative and diversified product offerings in our core real estate offering that cater to both core institutional investors as well as ESG-focused impact investors. So I think that's my sort of positive vision for 2030. There's a lot there, but, um, you know, that's all written into our 2030 strategy. So we're well on our way we'll, with all of those things. That's all for this edition of the Super Talk podcast. Thank you to Chris Nunn for his time and expertise today. He took us through a big run through of the AMP Capital uh, strategy to 2030 for their real estate sustainability. Uh, I hope you got a lot out of that. As I said at the top, very comprehensive stuff from Chris. Of course, a very big thank you to all at AMP Capital for their assistance with this episode. Until next time, bye for now.